Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50, and uh, reading again verses 4 down to 9. Isaiah 50 and verses 4 to 9. We read these words, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, I turn not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Twenty years ago, I went forward at the November Communion in Roskine. And after going forward, my grandparents gave me a copy of the book Memoir and Remains of Robert Murray McShane. It's not the kind of thing that you give to a 15-year-old, but that's how my grandparents were. Robert Murray McShane was pastor in Dundee in the mid-19th century before his death at the age of 29. And the first half of the book deals with his life, while the second half deals with his letters and his sermons. And in one letter, McShane writes, Learn much of your own heart, and when you have learned all that you can, remember you have seen but a few yards into a pit that is unfathomable. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. And I often think that that is very apt counsel, that is very appropriate counsel, very wise counsel for any Christian at any time, but especially at a communion weekend. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. And so this evening we're going to look at Christ as he's presented in these verses that we have just read. And we're looking at this under three headings. We're going to look at the servant's counsel, then the servant's compliance, and finally the servant's confidence. First the servant's counsel, and you see that in verse 4. Here Isaiah focuses on the servant's skill in God's word. The servant's skill in God's word. Now before proceeding, it's important to remember who Isaiah was in the context in which he was prophesying. He was the son of a man named Amos. The burden of his prophetic message was concerning the southern kingdom of Judah and its capital, Jerusalem. He prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah about 700 years before the birth of Christ. He prophesied during a time of political upheaval as the nation of Assyria were very much on the ascendancy and were just about to swallow up the northern kingdom of Israel. 
It was also a time of spiritual declension, spiritual decline, spiritual downgrade, where the nation of Judah had basically abandoned the Lord and were facing the very real and very imminent prospect of his righteous judgment. The nation of Babylon are soon going to come up against Jerusalem, against Judah, and as they come up against the country and its capital, they will carry off its inhabitants into exile in Babylon. And into this very bleak context, we find Isaiah speaking about the prospect of restoration. And the Lord's program of restoration is going to come about through a mysterious figure known as the servant of the Lord or simply as the servant. We find him speaking or being spoken about in Isaiah chapter 49, again in Isaiah chapter 50, again in Isaiah chapters 42 and finally Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. This is Isaiah's message very much to a people who are feeling despondent, a people who are feeling discouraged, a people who are feeling disillusioned, a people who are feeling disheartened, a people who are feeling that the Lord has just forsaken them, forgotten them. Isaiah's message to them is this. Look at the servant. Look at the servant. And I know that there are people in our congregation tonight who are disheartened, I know that there are people in our congregation who are disillusioned. I know that there are people in our congregation who are downcast. Maybe you're one of them. Maybe I'm one of them. And into that context, Isaiah says, look at the servant. Look at the servant. And in verse four, we hear the servant speaking about the counsel that he gives. The servant begins by speaking about the Lord God. That is the servant's focus in these verses. We find him speaking about the Lord God in verse 4, verse 5, verse 7 and verse 9. The God who rules over all things, reigns over all things, remains committed to his people and his promises. That is the focus of the servant. And the servant claims here that the Lord God gives him the tongue of those who are taught. The servant has been well informed by the Lord God as to what he should say. And he's not simply been informed by the Lord God as to what he should say, but also how he should say it. And the servant claims that having been given words from the Lord God, he knows how to sustain the weary with a word. His words aren't designed to discourage His words aren't designed to destroy. His words are designed to comfort and console. His words are designed to strengthen and sustain those who are wearied, those who are feeling worn out. And the servant then claims that the Lord God doesn't simply give him the tongue of those who are taught, but also the ear of those who are taught. This is how the servant knows what to say. And this is how he knows how to say it. He is someone who listens to the Lord God morning by morning. And as such, the words that he speaks to sustain the weary are always fresh. His words are never stale. His words are never dry. His words are never repetitive. His words carry, we might say, the very dew of heaven. They are new morning mercies. Uh, Friends, as we consider this verse, we are being shown that God's promised saviour, his agent of salvation, is one who is skilled in God's word. 
That is what we see in Isaiah 50. Isaiah is addressing a people who are going through a time of political and spiritual crisis. And they are being told here that the Lord is going to provide them with a saviour who will comfort them and console them. Will strengthen and sustain them with his word. And that is what we see in Jesus. In Acts chapter 8. Philip meets an Ethiopian court official and this court official is reading the servant passages in Isaiah and Philip says to him, do you understand what you're reading? And the man says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And Philip shows this Ethiopian court official that these servant passages find their fulfillment in no one else but Jesus Christ. Jesus is the servant of the Lord. He is God's promised saviour. He is God's agent of salvation. And what we find in Jesus is one who was skilled in God's word. In his earthly life, he was the wonderful counsellor. He knew what to say and didn't simply know what to say, but knew how to say it. And even today, he's the wonderful counsellor, even from heaven's throne. He is the wonderful counsellor who knows how to comfort, knows how to console, knows how to strengthen, knows how to sustain those who are wearied and worn out. Those who are downcast, those who are despondent. Sinclair Ferguson writes, what do you do with someone who is overcome with a sense of weariness and depression. Just say, pull yourself up, man. That is the counsel of despair. The weary cannot pull himself up. But Jesus knows the words to speak to those who are weary. His word comes to us and in the weariness we have with ourselves, in the way in which we have sinned, and some of us, the weariness we have with the world, and he is able to put his word right into our minds, right into our hearts. Have you ever experienced that? I've been in a situation where I felt that no one in the world, even those who have known me best, had any idea of where I am just now. And then you sit and listen to the word of God and the word of God comes to you with an accuracy and profundity and relevance that no one else in the world could possibly give to you because no one knows exactly where you are. And these words seem to have this power to lift you up. And perhaps that's been the experience of some of you tonight. You can look back on a dark season where your closest friends, your closest family couldn't do anything for you. They didn't know what to say. And maybe if they knew what to say, they didn't know how to say it without almost being harsh, almost being cruel, almost just putting you off. But the Lord came to you with his word. And it was that word that kept you afloat when you thought that you were going to sink. It was that word that kept you afloat when you thought you were going to go under. Dale Ralph Davis draws attention to this in recording the story of Andrew Boner's loss of his wife, Isabella. He writes, they had been married for 17 years and on the 15th of October, 1864, Isabella died of complications following childbirth. He wrote that on the day of her death, he had, according to his custom, been meditating on a scripture text. On that day, it had been Nahum 1 verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Boner adds, little did I know 
how much I would need those words in the days that came after. I dare say he never forgot Nahum 1 verse 7. But why did he mention it in his diary along with his wife's death? Because it was that promise of God's word, that affirmation of God's character that was keeping him on his feet. And so, friends, as we go to the Lord's table tomorrow, let's do so looking to the one who is skilled in God's word. Let's do so looking to the wonderful counsellor. But we move from the servant's counsel to the servant's compliance, verses 5 and 6. And here Isaiah focuses on the servant's submission to God's will. The servant's submission to God's will. Verse 5, we see the servant's obedience. The servant begins by saying that the Lord God opened his ear. Now, at one level, this means that the servant's ear was open to hear what God was saying. But it goes deeper than this. If you go back to Exodus 21, the Lord said that if a servant didn't want to leave his master, then his master, it's quite gruesome, but the master was to take that servant to a post and hammer a nail through the servant's ear, leaving the ear opened, leaving the ear pierced. The servant was then marked and committed to his master for life. And that is what we find here. The servant is saying here that the Lord God has opened his ear. He is a servant in that respect. And the servant goes on to express the totality of his commitment, the totality of his obedience, the totality of his submission to the Lord God. He says that he wasn't rebellious. And that he refused to turn back from his calling. If you remember a few weeks ago, we were looking at Exodus 3 and 4. And we find Moses wrestling with accepting the Lord's calling on his life. Or if you remember, if you can remember, in 2016, we looked at the life of Jonah. And saw how Jonah ran away from the Lord's calling on his life. But this servant refuses to rebel, refuses to wrestle, refuses to run away. And in verse 6, we see the outcome of the servant's obedience. The servant claims here that he gave his back to those who struck him. The book of Proverbs makes it clear that those who have no fear of God, those who, those who have no respect for God, no reverence for God, no regard for God, deserve to be beaten with rods. But here the servant allows his back to be beaten as he walks the path of obedience that the Lord God has laid out for him. The servant goes on to claim that he gave his cheeks to those who pull out the beard. Particularly painful, particularly humiliating. If you go back to Second Kings chapter 10, you find the Ammonites ripping out the beards of David's men, David's soldiers, just to humiliate them. And here the servant allows that to happen as he walks the path of obedience that the Lord God has laid out for him. And finally, the servant claims that he didn't hide his face from disgrace and spitting. That word disgrace refers to verbal taunts and insults. Meanwhile, spitting, as Edward Young writes, is the most contemptible gesture. I remember a few years ago, Rangers signed a a, a footballer, El Hajj Juf, and and he was loathed by the opposition fans and loathed by the, the opposition players because he was infamous for spitting at the fans and spitting at the, the other players. It's a disgusting kind of thing. 
And yet here the servant allows his face to be subjected to disgrace and to spitting as he walks the path of obedience that the Lord God has laid out for him. Friends, as we consider these verses, we are being shown that God's promised saviour, his agent of salvation, is one who is submissive to God's will. Submissive to God's will. That is what we find in Isaiah 50. Isaiah is addressing a people who are living through a time of political crisis, spiritual crisis. And they are being told that the Lord is going to provide them with a saviour who will refuse to rebel and will refuse to run away when it comes to doing everything necessary to restore them and save them in accordance with the Lord's plan and the Lord's purpose. And that is what we see in Jesus. What we find in Jesus is one who was submissive to God's will. Back in John chapter 4, he tells the disciples that his food is to do the will of the one who sent him. Then in Mark chapter 8, he tells the disciples that he must suffer many things, that he must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and that he must be killed. Paul Tripp calls this the must of God's sovereignty, that Jesus must do this because God has laid this out for him. Then in Mark 14, we find Jesus greatly distressed and troubled in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's pleading with his father to remove the cup that he's about to drink, remove the cross that he's about to be nailed onto, remove the death that he's about to die. And in the same breath, Even with tears, even with perspiration running down his face, he is saying, not what I will, but your will be done. Then in Matthew 27, we find him being beaten, taunted, spat on as he walks up Calvary Road in submission to his father's will. He refuses to rebel. Refuses to run away, refuses to resist. He is perfectly compliant, perfectly obedient, perfectly submissive to the point of death. And that place of crying out, as we read in John chapter 19, it is finished. Where he is not saying, I am finished. My body has expired. But rather he is saying, it is finished. I have done everything that my father has given me to do. It is finished. And that is the assurance of every Christian tonight. Jesus is the one who willingly and voluntarily complied with everything that his father gave him to do. This assurance is well illustrated in the life of John Gresham Machen. Machen was professor of, uh, well, president, in fact, of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He was also one of the founders of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And in the winter of 1936, he had gone to preach in some small congregations in South Dakota, and he became unwell with pneumonia. And on New Year's Day, 1937, he sent his last telegram to his friend and colleague, Professor John Murray. The words that he said were very simple. I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. By 7.30pm that evening, he had passed away. Machen's great comfort as he prepared to face death. His great comfort as he prepared to face the judgment seat 
wasn't his obedience to Christ, but Christ's obedience for him. And there is a huge difference. And so, friends, as we go to the Lord's table this Sunday, let's do so looking to the one who was submissive to God's will. The one who said, your will be done, as he did everything necessary to secure the salvation of his people. We, we don't go to that table saying, I have been so obedient to Christ. We go to that table saying, Christ has been so obedient for me. Third and finally, we come to the servant's confidence, verses 7 to 9. The ser- Isaiah now focuses on the servant's certainty of God's vindication. The servant's certainty of God's vindication. In verse 7, we're given a glimpse of the servant's confidence. The servant begins by expressing his conviction at the beginning of verse 7. He claims that the Lord God helps him or will be a help to him. Whatever may be happening in his life, whatever his providence, whatever his lot, the servant is confident in the Lord God. And that confidence determines his course, as you see in verse 7. Because the Lord God will help him, he is going to set his face like flint to follow God's will. Whatever might happen to him, however much it might cost him, he is setting his face in that direction. And he knows that doing so will not result in shame for him. He knows that he might experience some shame, some humiliation, some pain in the short term. But he knows that such shame, such humiliation, such pain will not be the end of the story for him. It will not be the last word on him. And in verses 8 and 9, we move from the servant's confidence to the sovereign's courtroom. The servant speaks in verses 8 and 9 about his deliverance. He claims that the one who vindicates him is near. He pictures himself now as being in a courtroom. And the Lord God stands in that courtroom ready to acquit him. Ready to declare him innocent of all the charges that are being presented and levelled against him. You see, the way that the servant is being treated, as, as his back is beaten, as he is being spat on, as his beard is being pulled out, as all these things are happening to him, the way that the servant is being treated seems to indicate that he has committed some heinous crime, that he has sinned against heaven, that he has sinned against earth, that he deserves to be treated as the scum, the refuse of this world. But the servant knows that he is innocent. He knows that he has been walking a path of obedience, a path of compliance, a path of submission to God's will. And he is confident, he is certain that the God who has seen this will vindicate him. And he goes on to claim that the accusations of his opponents won't hold up. He invites those who want to contend with him to stand beside him. He invites those who wish to be his adversaries to draw near to him. He invites any of those present in that courtroom to declare him guilty. He's saying to them, come on, guys, bring on the charges. Say your very worst about me. Because he is confident that with the help of the Lord God, the vindication of the Lord God, no one is going to be able to bring a charge that will stand against him or stick against him. And he closes by speaking not about his deliverance, but about the demise of his opponents. Look at the end of verse 9. 
He says that all those who would contend with him set themselves up in an adversarial position against him, attempt to prove him guilty, all those people will ultimately wear out like a garment, the moth will eat them up. Sinclair Ferguson tells the following story to illustrate this image of a moth-eaten garment. He says, I went with a friend when we were students around little churches across the north coast of Scotland where my parents came from. We went into one church that had that kind of musty, non-use smell, and we actually went right into the back of the church and into the minister's room. I guess we were maybe 20 or 21 at the time, but we were almost like naughty schoolboys. But there was a cupboard in the room. It was like Narnia. Let's see what's in the cupboard. And I remember opening the cupboard, and there was a minister's robe hanging in the cupboard. And I said to my friend, look, it's a minister's robe. I put out my hand and touched the minister's robe, and it just crumbled at the touch because the moths had been there. I never used so little energy to effect such great destruction. And here's the servant. And he's saying here that all the accusations of his opponents, in fact, not just their accusations, but these opponents themselves, they'll just come to nothing. They will disintegrate, they will dissolve, they will disappear like an old moth-eaten garment. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we've been shown that God's promised saviour, God's agent of salvation, is one who is certain of God's vindication, certain of God's vindication. That's what we see in Isaiah 50. Isaiah is addressing the people who are going through a time of spiritual crisis, political crisis, and they're being told that the Lord is going to provide them with a saviour who, despite the opposition of many, awful opposition, will ultimately be vindicated by the Lord God. And that is what we see in Jesus. What we find in Jesus is one who was certain of God's vindication. In Luke chapter 9, we find him telling his disciples that he is going to suffer many things, that he's going to be rejected by the chief priests and scribes, that he's going to be killed. And then he adds, and on the third day I will be raised. And in that very same chapter that we read earlier in the service, Jesus is described as setting his face firmly, resolutely, like flint in the direction of Jerusalem, the place where he will be arrested, the place where he will be put on trial, the place where he will be put to death, but also the place where he believes that he will be raised and vindicated. Later in Luke 22, we find him telling the chief priests and scribes as he stands on trial that they are going to see him and they are going to see him seated at the right hand of God. Jesus was confident. He was certain that he would be vindicated by his father. And that is why in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, Peter puts so much attention, so much focus So much emphasis, not so much on the death of Jesus, but the resurrection of Jesus. Peter tells the crowds that Jesus was a man attested by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that had been done in their midst, that they had all seen. And he tells them that this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That is, he walked in the will will of God, wasn't an accident what happened to him. And he tells them that God raised him up. Loosed him from the pangs of death, 
refused to allow him to remain in the grave or for his flesh to see corruption. Instead, Peter says, he was exalted to the right hand of God. In his book, Knowing Christ, Mark Jones writes, we need to recognise that the Father raised Jesus from the dead in order to vindicate him publicly. In the face of his cursed death on the cross, Jesus needed vindication as the true and obedient Son of God. And no one was more pleased to defend the righteousness of Christ than his own Father. No one was more pleased to defend the righteousness of Christ than his own Father. And so as we go to the Lord's table this Sunday, friends, let's do so looking to the one who was certain of God's vindication. The one who has heard the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And who has secured God's vindication, freedom from all condemnation and a place at that table of remembrance, that table of thanksgiving, that table of fellowship, that table of blessing for all his people. You see, friends, if Jesus was vindicated by his father, then all those who are in Christ will likewise be vindicated by his father and if he wasn't vindicated by his father (coughs) then no matter how much faith we may have in him we will not be vindicated by his father so let's examine ourselves tonight but as we examine ourselves let's take ten looks at this Jesus the one skilled in God's word, the one surrendered to God's will, and the one certain of God's vindication.